We've been looking for the last uh, six weeks at the story of the Good Samaritan. And we're doing it because we want to learn how to better love our neighbor. And very specifically, how do we love our neighbors here in Hendersonville? Now, the story of the Good Samaritan is found in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus gives it in response to a question by a lawyer uh, who came to Jesus asking him what the greatest of the commandments were. Jesus says, you know, what does the law say? What do you read? And he said, you know, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. But then the lawyer wanted to justify himself and ask the question, who is my neighbor? And so I want to uh, remind us once again, the very brief story, yet profound story that Jesus told. I'm going to be reading from what's called the uh, voice translation. Uh, it tells the story of the Good Samaritan in a very different way than perhaps we're used to. And so I hope it'll be a fresh way of hearing this story. Here's Jesus's response to the lawyer. This fellow was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers mugged him. They took his clothes, beat him to a pulp, and left him naked and bleeding and in critical condition. By chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed by. Then a Levite, who was on his way to assist in the temple, also came and saw the victim lying there, and he too kept his distance. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. When he saw the fella, he felt compassion for him. The Samaritan went over to him, stopped the bleeding, applied some first aid, and put the poor fella on his donkey. He brought the man to an inn and cared for him through the night. The next day, the Samaritan took out some money, two days' wages to be exact, and paid the innkeeper, saying, Please take care of this fella, and if this isn't enough, I'll repay you next time I pass through. Which of these three proved a neighbor to the man who had been mugged by the robbers? I hope that's just maybe a different way of hearing this particular parable of Jesus. And so for six weeks now, we've been looking at different characteristics of what it means to love one's neighbor. Last week, we looked at the fact that love is responsive. This week, we, looked at the sub we look at the subject of love is costly. And I'm happy to uh, have with me in this uh, particular lesson this week, uh, Mark Adams. Uh, Mark is an uh, old friend of mine uh, who was raised here in Nashville. I'm going to let him say a little bit about himself. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, just excited to get the invitation. Well, brother, it's good to uh, be with you. Uh, I'm glad that we can renew our friendship. Yes. Uh, I enjoyed so much when you were working at the Old Hickory Church of Christ and uh, the several lunches that we got to have yeah. together and always appreciated uh, your work. And especially your insight into scripture, brother. That was one of the well, likewise, likewise. Yeah, Thank I you. Just yeah, appreciate that so much. So um, I know you're at the King's Crossing Church of Christ in Corpus Christi, Texas. Mm -hmm. But tell us a little bit about your background, where you were raised, where you went to school, about your sure. family, and then just a short little snippet about your work there at King's Crossing. Sure. Okay. Um, well, so I, I am born and raised in Nashville. 
and uh, grew up at the Donaldson Church of Christ, where my parents have been members since, I guess, the year before I was born, around 1978, 1979, uh, when they joined. They've been there uh, a long time. I uh, grew up uh, there, went to school, graduated from uh, Ezel Harding Christian School, uh, went to Harding University for my undergraduate work, and then also to the Harding Graduate School for my master's degree. Uh, somewhere around in there, I ended up uh, marrying my wife, Carolina, and uh, then did some doctoral work at uh, Lipscomb University. And I believe John Micah is uh, doing some work there uh, currently. Yes, he's, he's finished yeah. his as well. <laughs> well, we, have, uh, we just had our first child in uh, March of this year. We have a beautiful little son named Joaquin. He is uh, just about to turn four months old and uh, is really a delight to us. Hopefully you don't end up hearing him scream in the background too much while I'm doing this, but uh, we're really glad, uh, glad to have him. But uh, yeah, we, we moved down to Corpus Christi, Texas in uh, 2014. So uh, this coming September will make uh, six years uh, that I've been working here. Uh, it's been, been a good work. I've uh, enjoyed the opportunity, enjoyed getting to know the people of uh, South Texas and um, just trying to, trying to be useful in the kingdom, you know? Let, let's look at this text that I just got through reading. Uh, of course, one of the more popular parables of Jesus, that of the of the Good Samaritan, but more specifically from this context of it being love being costly. Uh, if you could take a minute and reflect in what ways was uh, it costly for this Samaritan to take time out of his schedule to help this man on the side of the road? You know, Les, when I think about the costs for the Samaritan, I guess my mind kind of gravitates towards some of the immediate uh, tangible costs. Um, there was certainly the uh, financial cost of paying for the room at the end. And I, I like that translation that he gave him, you know, two days wages. I mean, I think yeah. about if you were to take your paycheck and cut out, you know, two days worth of your salary for a stranger you didn't know and just give that up willingly. Um, someone who was unconscious, who couldn't even really respond or say they wanted the help, you know. Uh, so I think there is certainly a financial cost involved. I'm inclined to wonder, you know, this is a, a parable, so we don't really know the setting of the story, but that Samaritan was going somewhere. He was yeah. doing something. Uh, you don't just travel uh, through treacherous roads for no reason. So I'm inclined to wonder what it was he was supposed to have been getting to. What was he late for? What did he not get to accomplish because he took time out for this person? So I know um, that had to be some sort of cost. So um, I guess there's also the just the time and energy of taking care of a person, kind of cleaning him up, wiping him off, uh, traveling with him. Um, I don't know that we can assume he would have been going to this inn otherwise, aside from the fact that he was trying to find a place for this guy uh, to rest and recover. Um, so the time and the energy, and then um, even down to the, to the donkey, right? You know, he's got his, he's got his ride, and he takes this, uh, this injured man and you know, puts him up on his animal to carry him. And so he ends up walking, even though he brought transportation. So I think in my mind, I would tend to go immediately towards several of what I would call kind of the smaller inconveniences of, of the situation. But uh, I think there's some other ways it could potentially run deeper than that. But that would be my, my first reaction to that. What about you? Yeah, uh, you know, that last one, especially, um, I was in Israel uh, two years ago, and to see the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, I think in my head, it was always much shorter. Yeah. You actually go over there and see how long it takes. And, and then, of course, as it said, 
it's a very treacherous area. You're going down all the time. And these were, you know, th these weren't modern highways. Uh, a lot of rocks, uh, a lot of dangerous areas, obviously. Robbers hid there. And so, uh, yeah, the costly e element is there in a lot of different ways. Uh, let, let me pause just for a second and throw out this question. Uh, we're talking here about loving one's neighbor. Uh, people probably out in the world would say, you know what, we love our neighbors as well. And so, in, in what sense are Christians called on to love their neighbor that might be different than, than the way a non-Christian would be? Well, um, you know, Les, to me in this passage, one big thing that, that shows up is that uh, this Samaritan is loving in such a way that there is no guarantee or even an expectation that something reciprocal is going to happen. Uh, my, my understanding is that it probably would have been the common mentality for Jewish people at the time that if you were to say, hey, you're dying on the side of the road, they would say, I would rather die than be helped by a Samaritan. Yeah. So when I think about this Samaritan stopping and helping, I'm thinking, you know, here, here's an act that's purely done for the good of the other person. Uh, there wasn't any expectation he was going to get paid back, treated differently, or might not even be appreciated for what he did. Uh, but I like the way that um, love that's costly comes from a deep place. So this is not a guy saying, well, if I love this guy or show kindness to this guy, what's in it for me? This is a guy who's saying, I want to be a kind person. Therefore, this, this is the kind of action I'm going to take, you know, irrespective of how anyone uh, reacts to it or uh, responds to it. So that would be one of the things I think about is how Christian love um, should be for the good of the other person um, because the love of Christ lives in us. And so not, not just for what we get in return for it, but because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So to your quote about like people saying, yeah, well, we love our neighbors. Something that I think is really different about the world these days is that we all now live in communities that are so, um, you know, I hate to use the term segregated, but really kind of segregated based on income levels. And so when you love your neighbors, if it all happens to be people in a gated community who can probably, you know, benefit you, pay you back, it's really different to think about loving your neighbor when you're talking about someone truly other than yourself and very different from yourself, uh, from the other side of the tracks, uh, so to speak. You so those would be some of my thoughts, you know. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, was interesting as I was kind of exploring this is uh, uh, the response of uh, people two, three hundred years after, you know, the establishment of the church. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Christianity was known for was this incredible love that uh, they had for not just their fellow Christians, but for uh, people who are not Christians uh, there in the Roman Empire. I, I know for a fact that Christians oftentimes would buy the freedom of slaves uh, mm. in order, you know, and Christianity kind of eventually, in many ways, undermined slavery throughout the Roman Empire. One of my favorite quotes, though, is from a, a Roman emperor by the name of Julian. Uh, Julian uh, ruled from 361 to 363 AD. He was the second emperor after Constantine had legalized Christianity in 313. And so Christianity had now been a legal religion for, you know, over 50 years. But Julian comes to the throne and 
he reverts back to the ancient Roman gods. He wants to restore the glory of ancient Rome. And he writes regarding Christianity. Of course, he didn't put on a massive persecution of Christians. It's just that he promoted uh, Roman paganism. But here's what he said about Christianity. He called us atheists because we only believed in the one God. He says atheism has been specific or uh, specially, excuse me there, specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, another name for us, care not only for their own, uh, their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. I mean, when, when I hear that and think, wow, what a difference Christians were making in the first, you know, several centuries of the church because of this incredible, costly love. I mean, for people who are not even Christian, just for anybody who needed assistance. Right. Uh, any other insights into, into that early, early church's history? Yeah, you know, um, that's, a, that's a great quote, by the way. Um, I, I love um, I love all the good things that it says about the conduct of the Christians. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a dark illustration to bring up, but you know, one of the common practices in the Roman Empire. You know, we've uncovered several mass graves of newborn infants where you know they didn't have abortion practices, but if you had, you know, most often these are females. And so if you had a little girl and you wanted a little boy, uh, they would do what they would call exposing the infant. And it was a common practice. And so they would basically just take them to this ditch and toss them in there and leave them to die. And my understanding is that it was also one of the common practices of Christians to routinely go by these places. And if they saw a baby that had been left, uh, they would take it home and care for it. Uh, So you think about the cost of taking a child on as your own, loving it, raising it, but it's also one of the ways that Christianity was spread, uh, that, that consistent practice of costly love uh, that values other people intrinsically as image bearers of God and uh, just refuses to see anyone as disposable or, or not worthy of love and redemption. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot that can be said about Christianity in those first few centuries and uh, the way that love is uh, something that speaks loudly, doesn't it? I mean, looking at Julian's response to it, uh, love is a loud and beautiful thing uh, when it's when it's shown. Let's reflect a little bit, if we can. When you think about scriptures from Old New Testament as well that speak of why faith and love is always costly, what passages or stories or texts would come to your mind? Yeah, there's there's a few different ones. I think um, I think in general, when we talk about love being costly, uh, when we're talking about love at all, we are talking about the nature of God, aren't we? I mean, if God is love, uh, then to talk about love being costly says something about God's heart. And so I would also attach it to the word generosity. Uh, I think of God really being truly a very generous God. He's been generous with his love and his grace and his mercy and his guidance and all these things. So I would encourage us to think of even some familiar passages like John 3.16, which uh, if I can just chop off to the first part of the verse, for God so, lo- uh, for God so loved the world that he gave. Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
And so even if you stop right there, that says something about what love is. Love gives. Uh, love is willing to expend cost, is willing to, to do things that are costly. So because God loves us, he gives. And to be like God, we should also be givers. Uh, we should be people who are willing to, um, to spend, to donate, to, to volunteer, to sacrifice. Um, I'm, I'm also reminded um, back in 2 Samuel 24, um, I don't want to spend too much time on the story, but basically uh, David ends up in a spot where he's wanting to worship God. He needs access to a place to offer sacrifices and some animals for the sacrifice. And uh, there's a gentleman named Araona who is the owner of this space and is willing to just give it to him. And there's a quote I wanted to pull from 2 Samuel 24 and verse 24, where David is wanting to worship, and he has someone else who says, well, here, let me give you what you need to worship. And David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor from Araunah for 50 shekels of silver. So that line uh, really sticks with me. I will not give to God that which cost me nothing. Uh, worship itself should be something that feels sacrificial. I mean, even that term sacrificial involves sacrificing. Um, I think it's C.S. Lewis who has this great quote about when, when I consider uh, what he would call my charitable expenditures, the, the money that I spend for benevolent causes, for church, for, uh, for, for things that I believe in, he says, I should be so committed to those things I'm spending for charitably that sometimes by necessity, I have to exclude some other things that I want because of how much I'm giving to those things that I think are, are most important. And I think David models that. I'm not going to give anything to God that costs me nothing. What I give to God needs to cost me something, or it isn't really worship, he says. Um, one, other, uh, one other passage I want to bring into this, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4. There's just this interesting phrasing where it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But that's some pretty wow. sacrificial language as well. Yeah. I am. I am Wow. I am so dedicated to God that before I sin, you're going to have to make me bleed. You know, I am, I am going to resist sin and temptation to the point that it, that it physically threatens me because I am not going to compromise my covenant with the Lord or my integrity. Uh, I don't know many of us that regularly think in those, those terms, but that verse is one that's also hung with me for a long time when I think about uh, the costly nature of love. No, I... When I say that I love the Lord, I'll, I'll bleed and suffer before I'll ever renege on that. So those are a few verses I think about. Yeah. You know, Mark, as, as you were mentioning that, my mind went back to uh, several years ago when ISIS was mm. beheading uh, Christians, uh, people who claim to be followers of, of Jesus. And I found myself uh, asking myself if I were in the situation that these men uh, that, and, and women found themselves in. Wow. To literally give your life, to uh, shed your blood because you believed in Jesus Christ and in the, and, and the cause that he's called you to. Yeah, that is the ultimate of cost. And then, you know, the other thing I was thinking about is just Jesus himself. Uh, I don't think we oftentimes think of what Jesus gave up to come to earth. And, and there's a text in John's gospel, and, and the actual passage doesn't come to my mind right now. As I say to people, just read all of it, you'll come across it. But where Jesus basically says to the apostles, I want you to see the glory 
that I had with the Father, you know, before the incarnation. And for Jesus to have given up, you know, being in the presence and fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit to come here. Wow, what great love he had for us. Yeah. And so, like yeah. That, it's like that Philippians 2 passage, right? The great yes. Christ hymn where, you know, he's humbled himself. The idea that Jesus chose to empty himself of some of what was rightfully his, but not just to the point of getting here, but as Philippians says, even to the point of making himself a servant, but then serving us to the point of being killed on the cross. You know, there was, there was no depth to which he was unwilling to go when it came to giving up, paying the cost. Uh, so yeah, his love was, was deeply costly. And uh, yeah, I like, I like what you're bringing up. Yeah, I think sometimes we as Christians, you know, when Jesus gave the new commandment and in John 13, and he says, you love one another as I have loved you. That as I have loved you, of course, is the marker by which we measure our love for one another, our love for others, uh, our love for our enemies. And when I think about just how much Jesus loved us, and like you said, you know, when Jesus was in the garden and Peter pulled the sword, he said, really? You don't think I could ask the Father? And he's going to give me, you know, 72,000 angels mm -hmm. to come in and protect me if I, if I need help. Uh, yeah, Jesus talking about sacrificial, costly love is this incredible example. So let me raise this question to you. So what is it about being American Christians that, that cause us to struggle with this concept of costly love? Now, love, I get, but the costly part. You know, when I think about, uh, for instance, if I'm not wrong, y'all are in the, in the process of building an addition to your facility. We are, yeah. And uh, I assume that that requires some fundraising efforts. Couple of years worth, yeah, it was a big ordeal. Yeah, yeah, and and here's the question, you know, when you say to church members, you know, we've got an important project and we want you to help with that, to give, and to give until it hurts. I wonder how many of us would be willing to give up, you know, our, our cable television, who'd be willing to give up, uh, you know, our fancy cell phone plans. I mean, the list could just go on and on, uh, uh, like you said a few moments ago, sometimes our giving is giving, but it's never giving to the point of where it hurts. Mm -hmm. So why? Why are our American Christians so reluctant? You know, in general, um, sometimes what can be a strength about a person can also be a weakness, right? And so in America, and certainly in the West, we are highly individualistic. Now, there are some ways that that has benefited us as a culture because we each uh, take seriously, I think, the importance of me trying to be my best self, to do my best, to achieve the most that I can. Uh, sometimes competition can be good, uh, that there's some ways that competition benefits us uh, when the best product is what wins out and the best pricing is what carries the day. So there's some ways that our, you know, individualistic competitiveness um, gives us benefit. So I wouldn't be ready to entirely throw that out. But there are some other ways that our individualism kind of blinds us to what I think are some crucial elements uh, to the way that Scripture envisions the church. Uh, you notice that in Scripture, um, you never see language about Jesus coming to save individual Christians who do their own thing. He comes to, to save the church. 
You know, it's in being part of the body of Christ, not the bodies of Christ, but the body of Christ uh, that we find that we find salvation. But, uh, you know, I think some particularly uh, sinister words that we use often in our culture, you owe it to yourself. Yeah. How many yeah. times does somebody use that term trying to get you to do something selfish and materialistic? You know, you really owe it to yourself to have such and such. And I think often when we consider what we're willing to sacrifice for, uh, when you're overly individualistic, it tends to just be things that are somehow going to get me ahead. So you think about what people are willing to sacrifice for, for greater achievement in their careers. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, we would look at some of the Old Testament stories and, and ancient stories about, you know, ritual child sacrifice and that sort of thing. But let's make no mistake, there are plenty of people around us every day who are quite willing to put their marriages and their children on the chopping block if it means getting a promotion and getting more money or more stuff. So uh, I think it's something that we battle with uh, constantly. I would think some about Jesus's story. You know, we have the American dream, which is, you know, a story we like to see in our culture of a person who has nothing, who gains everything. Whereas Jesus met a rich man who had everything. And the story Jesus wanted to see in that man's life was the man who had everything, who chose to give it all away. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so um, some some of Scripture's values I think are a little counterintuitive uh, for us, but I think in general, um, for us to try and uh, recapture the ideas of both covenant and community, um, you know, covenant. What we were talking about with that Hebrews passage that I am so committed to this that I will bleed before I will back down from that commitment. So that I, you know, when I've made a covenant to God. That, that comes at the top of everything else. I think it's Randy Harris who says that when it comes to your schedule, your budget, or anything else, put God on top, put God first, and then see if there's anything big enough to knock, knock him out of that spot. You know, So, so yeah. really allowing God to come first, honoring covenants that we make. Um, you want to be connected to something that's bigger and more important than yourself. Uh, if the only thing you're doing in life is serving yourself, it's really a pretty small goal and it's a really temporary goal because you're not going to last forever. But um, the covenant and then also that sense of community. Um, one of the wonderful things about uh, our current culture, you know, just as we were getting started, Les, we were talking about, you know, pulling up BibleGateway.com. And I can look at, I don't know how many dozens of Bible translations. I've got it on my phone. I've got probably 25 or 26 translations of the Bible in my office. We're so accustomed to thinking in terms of like my Bible. Yeah. But we forget the dynamic that really when we read Scripture, it's our Bible that the word is for the community of God, that we read scripture together, we interpret scripture as a community, uh, that we hold each other accountable, um, that we challenge each other with the word. And so, uh, yeah, I think those two words would be big for me. The idea of, of covenant, really honoring God and putting God first, and then uh, a recommitment to the Christian community, that I'm not just a Lone Ranger Christian, but I'm part of the church, and that matters. You know, Mark, when I think about uh, individualism, I think you're right. Boy, you're talking about hitting the nail on the head. Uh, I th I've heard so many people over the years talk about, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accumulated. Uh, you know, I oftentimes tell people that the American dream is in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus tells the story about a farmer who was so successful that he had to tear down his barns, build bigger barns. And then he said, uh, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to take life easy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And that's the American dream. I it mean, is. many of us don't want to 
uh, have Publishers Clearinghouse knock on our door and say, congratulations, you've won enough money to take care of you the rest of your life so that we don't have to work, we don't have to, you know, do anything other than take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, yeah, but you're not thinking, you know, outside yourself. And because you're not uh, generous toward me through being generous to your fellow man, you know, uh, you're declared to be a fool. And so, the, boy, that really resonates, that individualism that we so much have. Well, let me ask you one last question. What is the benefit? What's the blessings? What's the reward of loving at this costly nature as, as the Samaritan demonstrated to us? What do we get out of it? Well, I think one thing that we get is some level of clarity about what matters most to us. So, you know, I think as, as Americans, and I assume most of us listening in to, today are, are probably uh, Americans, I'd certainly have to say of myself that I, I have way more than I need. Uh, we have been so blessed as individuals and as a nation with so many opportunities and so many good things, and, and we're grateful for those things. But I think just like what we've been talking about, I think every American Christian has to wrestle with how much am I putting God first and how much am I really just attached to my stuff and the things that I want to have. And so one way that generosity, uh, costly love um, helps us to clarify is that it does answer that question. You know, what am I willing to put first? And if I'm willing to love others to the point that it means I have to deny myself some stuff, um, whether we're talking about uh, possessions or what reputation I was hoping those possessions would earn for me, that people have to see me as a high achiever or high income earner or whatever those things are. Um, Costly love, when I know that I could have had that, but I gave that up because this is more important. I hope that gives us some mental clarity and also a little bit of inner peace when you say, you know, Lord, that was tough. I wish my attitude would have been better, but I did it for you. And I, and I did it. You know, I, I did it. I chose to put others first. Uh, I think some clarity comes from that. And uh, truthfully, I do think we find language in Scripture about the way that God repays us, that God is this loving, benevolent Father who has everything at His fingertips. And by us choosing to show Him uh, through the love that we show, our energy, our talents, our emotions, everything that it costs us to be loving, I think God pays us back for that and, and, and cares for us. Um, there's that great passage in Malachi where God is fussing at people about how they've been holding back their tithes and offerings because they're trying to get nicer houses for themselves. And he really challenges them. He throws down that challenge and says, go ahead and give the full tithe. Give me what you should. Be generous the way that you ought to and see if I don't bless you abundantly. You know, ch- test me on this and see if I don't come through even more. Um, you know, there's a, a little quote I wanted to share. There's this great poem called The Hound of Heaven. Uh, it was in 1909 by Francis Thompson. It's a pretty pretty long poem, but it portrays God as what it calls the hound of heaven. And it's like a story. The person narrating has just tried and tried and tried to avoid God in their life. And they've run from God and they've run from God and they've been a wretched, selfish person And as it gets to the end of the poem, it's like they finally collapsed and they have nowhere left to run. They have nowhere else to turn. And what God says as he approaches them, I'd like to read this. It says, all which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy harms, 
but just that thou mightst seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. So I love this message. All the stuff you think you're giving up for God, just wait till you get in the presence of God, and he's going to dump even more on you. you. You haven't given up anything. Anything you give up for God, he's going to pay you back, perhaps not always materially immediately, but God's going to do more than even the score. God is going to be as generous with us as we are with others. And uh, that, that to me is a helpful thought. Wow, that, that's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, any personal illustrations that yeah. illustrate just what it means to learn the importance of costly love? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, definitely. So um, when you brought up your topic to me, which is a, a great topic, by the way, um, you know, so, some of the way that this conversation has gone, I guess I have you know, brought up several things as it pertains to materialism and the cost of money, which you know, ties in well to cost, but um, costly love involves a lot of different aspects of our person. So right. yeah, I, I'd like to share this story with you of... Um, probably what, what in my life has taught me the most about the cost of truly loving another person. Um, at Donaldson, when I was growing up, I, I don't know if they still do this or not, but it was, it was practiced that on Sunday afternoons, you could volunteer to go and to deliver communion to shut-ins. And okay. so that was something that me and a lot of my friends would go do with our fathers. So Sunday afternoons, there were certain, you know, there was these different circuits you would go on and you'd go to three or four houses or nursing homes and you would deliver communion to our members who were no longer able to be physically present. And um, there was one family named the, the Phillips and um, Mrs. Phillips, I mean, they were both older. Mrs. Phillips was in reasonably good health, but Mr. Phillips was just in terrible shape. And so I was about 10 or 11 years old uh, when I went over there with my dad. And Mr. Phillips is in the back room on a hospital bed. He's mostly senile. He's not especially pleasant. And so we're trying to have a visit with Mrs. Phillips and we serve her communion. And he's in the back bedroom, basically just kind of yelling incoherent things the whole time. So as a 10, 11 year old boy, um, I was just kind of disturbed, I guess. I, I didn't really know what to make of it. But Mrs. Phillips said, you know, since I've got you both here, uh, I'm just not hardly strong enough to do this on my own, but could you please come and help me? And uh, Mr. Phillips at this point is not able to even walk. You know, he's, he's bedridden. And so he's using, you know, Depends type adult diapers. Sure. And she said, I really need help changing him. And so we went back there and I remember just thinking to myself, boy, I don't want to do this. And so this, this old gentleman is lying there on the bed. He's probably in his, you know, eighties. And we, we ended up, you know, changing out his, his diaper. And the, the thing that would make sense would be maybe to like lift his legs up, but he has such bad back pains. You can't do that. So you have to try and roll him around and he's in pain and he's yelling and he's not appreciative. And I remember just thinking like, this is awful. You know, so whenever dad goes on this route, I don't want to go on this route again. Yeah. And so we get back to the living room. And Mrs. Phillips uh, continues visiting with us. And she says, you know, thank you all so much for, for helping with that. But then she stopped talking to my dad and she looked at me and said, Mark, I know that was a really difficult thing for you to see, but I'm not sorry that you had to see it or that you had to do it because you need to understand what love really is. 
when I committed to love my husband until death parted us, it didn't just mean I'm going to love him when things were good and easy, but it means now, and even especially now, when he's unable to do anything for himself, I'm going to continue to love him and serve him and take care of him however I have to, because that's what love really is. Love is not just love when it's easy. It's love when it costs us something and it's difficult. So when you think about one day, if you're going to find someone that you're going to marry, you need to understand what a real commitment of love is and what it can involve. And, you know, that's something that has stayed with me the rest of my life. I mean, if nothing else, it humbled me, but um, I never thought about love the same way because she totally redefined it for me. At, so. at 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm, I, here I am. I'm turning 40 this year, less, and um, I, I, just as vivid as the day it happened. But, what a wonderful story. And, and what a blessing to you. Right. I mean, because like you said, it helped you define what commitment was. And uh, as, as a husband, as a father, uh, that's such an important point. Well, wonderful. Well, Mark, thank you so much for uh, joining us in this series, Our Town. Uh, thank you for what you do in the kingdom of God. And uh, I want to finish us with a prayer. And uh, God bless you in the ministry there at King's Crossings. And uh, sometime, I know right before you left, if I'm not wrong, right before you left to go to right. King's Crossing, you actually spoke here at Hendersonville. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was, I think I was telling you, the last guest speaking spot I had in Nashville before I moved to Corpus Christi uh, was there, I guess it was 2014. It was just a few weeks before we moved down, but uh, Hendersonville was nice enough to invite me over uh, to speak on a Wednesday night. So I have gotten to be there a few times over the years. Appreciate uh, the good work there at the Hendersonville congregation. I'm happy that you're there and uh, a lot of other dear people that I, that I know and appreciate. So yeah, thank you again for the opportunity to uh, do this with you. And I'd love for you to close us out in prayer. Yes, let's do it right now. Father, thank you so much for this time that I've been able to spend with Mark uh, and uh, for his sharing of his insights into what it means to love when even when it's costly, Father. We know you did that when you sent Jesus uh, to earth especially when Jesus went to the cross and Jesus commands that we love in the same way that he loved, which is always costly. And Father, help us to do that because that is what you are as God. And we want to reflect your image in our life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.